This week's episode of Listen Money Matters is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your snail mail to the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. You also get a real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. Earth Class Mail is a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit earthclassmail.com and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up and use the offer code LISTEN. That's earthclassmail.com and offer code LISTEN. Hey, what is up, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Listen Money Matters, advice for overcoming personal financial struggles, such as shitting your very fancy work pants. Oh, man. Okay, Andrew, Mm. understand what it means now. At first, I thought he said our advice was to shit your work pants, but no, he's saying it's a struggle to overcome. Yeah, I mean, you have to have redundant pants. I thought that RGS via email, uh, I guess he didn't want to give us his real name, was misinterpreting our advice, but no. He got it perfect. It, you know, some people lose their jobs because they arrive to work in shitty pants. <laughs> That's that happens. Experience with this, Andrew. Nah. Uh, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are you drinking, dude? Uh, I'm drinking a Roly Poly Pills from River Horse. You do like that River Horse brewery, ah, dude? It's it's like kind of local over here. Um, and the hippo, like I just I love the hippo. So you know, cool. Cool. So, guys, today on the show, we are uh, happy to welcome Laura Novak onto the show. So, how's it going, Laura? Good. How are you? And I, for the record, I am I'm not wearing pants. I actually rarely wear pants. I'm always in a dress. Yeah, it's sort of my signature thing. So, oh. um, maybe that's what's gotten me to today. <laughs> uh, I may have to pick that tip up. <laughs> I recommend it. You could pull off a kilt, Thomas. You could definitely do that. I could do that. So I hear that you own a photo studio, but you don't just own a photo studio. You actually help other people build their own photo studios as well. Yeah. So I've been in the photography industry for a long time, about 15 years. And the first 10 years, I became an expert in my field and really learned the art of being a very upscale, high-end family photographer. I photographed celebrities, sports celebrities, flying all over the country. And, um, realized that my I really wanted to do something where anybody could have access to just fabulous family photography. So we opened up a studio outside the Philadelphia area. A good friend of mine and I opened it up, and that went really well. And then we opened up another one, and that went really well. And then we realized that if we wanted to grow it, um, and this is a great this is a great segue into your topic of of finance. If we wanted to grow it company owned, it would take a tremendous amount of money. And so growing this concept through franchising ended up being the right decision for us. And so now we have four open, three of which are franchised. I end up selling one of my company-owned locations to a customer and converting it to a franchise. I own one. It's kind of our test kitchen, which is around the corner from our back office in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. And then we have five more around the country um, under construction. So that. Yeah, so we'll have nine open shortly. We have a couple more people come flying out to see us in the next few weeks. Um, could have ten open <laughs> opening by the end of September. So that's all really exciting. So that that's awesome. that's awesome. And um, I just, I kind of want to like give like a little bit of backstory because I heard you had a franchise and I was really excited because um, there's this book. It's called The E Myth. Uh, it's by this guy uh, Michael Gerber. And he's a big fan of franchising. Um, we're just like the franchise model. And I have this quote from him. It's, uh, it's a proprietary way of doing business that successfully and preferentially differentiates every extraordinary business from one of its competitors. In this light, every great business in the world is a franchise. And a, one of the reasons he's really interested in it is because you could work in your business and then you die or something happens and your business dies, or you could work on your business, create a process, you know, to replicate its success, like what you did, um, and then be able to step away and let other people do the hard work. Yeah. And I, I would say that's also true for our franchisees. I mean, nobody's that interested in buying like a, a retail, a single retail concept, right? Mm. But our franchisees, typically franchises will sell at three to four times cash flow. Um, whereas if it's just a retail shop, 
I mean, it's very hard to sell that. So yeah. even for them, they're building a great asset that could they that could be sold to somebody else. I mean, when I went to go sell my company on location to a franchise, I had a lot of demand um, for it because it's already set up and it's part of a of a proven system and process um, for the franchisee. So. Uh- what brought you down the franchisee route? Because I, I don't think it's like the default entrepreneur way, right? It's like the entrepreneur wants to do everything themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think that earlier on in my career, I learned to let go of that for the sake of, of being able to grow a business. And I think that that's something that early stage entrepreneurs tend to struggle with. But you soon realize that you can either like die working or you're going to have to let go of control. And, you know, I'm a mom, I have a family and it's just, I want to be with my kids at night. And if I want to do that, I've got to learn how to let go of control. And every day, um, I make a decision around that and it tends to be a really good decision to, to let, um, the people in our organization who are incredibly competent and in many ways better at what they do than I would ever be, uh, take the reins. So I happily give up control. I think that the franchising route initially when it came to me, I was sort of like, oh, God, no, you know, that's like fast food. It's not upscale family photography. But the more research I did, the more I realized the fastest growing franchise concepts in the country tend to be these female focused service concepts like bar fitness or uh, or hair hair um, styling like the low dry bars. So those are just taking off like crazy. Because there's a lot of women that want control over their lives and they don't want to give up the career, but at the same time, they want to leave at three o'clock and not have anybody question them. Uh, So that ended up, uh, we were approached to franchise, interestingly enough. The first person that approached us and said, I'd really like to bring your concept to my area. I've been watching you grow it and you've done what a lot of other brands haven't been able to figure out how to do, which is to scale a higher end family photography studio. That person ended up not being the right fit for to be a franchisee, mm-hmm. but they inspired us to go through all the paperwork and all the startup expenses of being a franchisor. So, to, to take a step back, could you explain, like in in your eyes, what a franchise is? Because yeah. it's obviously different than the McDonald's, like you said. Sure, my specific franchise or just my philosophical view on franchising? Both. So my franchise is a brick and mortar, 2000 square foot upscale family photography studio concept. And it really doesn't exist. Like typically in chain photography concepts, it's very low end, it's commoditized product. It's not, it's not something that people, um, think of as art and our work definitely is our photographers are artists and they do an incredible job taking care of our guests the concept is interestingly not best owned by a photographer now a photographer makes an amazing employee but what we found is that the sales unless the photographer has sales and marketing background we really are looking for business people to own our franchises and those people have been incredible for our brand um, bringing on people with extensive sales marketing background or um, operations backgrounds, but love being in the creative space and love being around creative people tend to be the best franchisees for us. And so we've learned that just going through the vetting process and um, going through the process of being a franchisor. And to me, philosophically, being a franchisor is about helping other people be successful because I'm, I, I get paid off of their success in a royalty stream. So if they're not doing well or I can't keep them open, I'm not going to be successful. I'm not going to be able to sell additional franchises and I'm not going to make any money. So yeah. it's a true partnership. Um, and I think uh, as franchising becomes more and more popular because most of like retail GDP in the country is, is French from franchises, mm. um, that that will um, continue to be the sentiment that it's a true partnership. It's up to me to create. Uh, it's to support and serve our franchisees so that they can do really well. Do you think the importance of the franchisee being someone who's more of a business person and not a photographer is a variable that's dependent on your industry? Because um, I interviewed a coffee shop owner once on my podcast, and he kind of said the opposite thing, where a successful coffee shop owner is the person who is always pursuing kind of the God espresso shot and, you know, (laughs) goes coffee in and out and who's going to be there being the barista for, you know, probably the first three years of the coffee shop's existence. Is it just the fact that photography is inherently different than coffee and, and how much time it takes or, uh, the focus it takes away from the business? I think it's that franchising is inherently different than owning a single store. Franchising it's very important that you're the kind of person that likes to run the play. 
Like if you put it in sports terms, I'm not a sports person, but you guys are a couple dudes, so I'm going to assume that that's probably a good, you know, if you guys aren't. <laughs> I, I think you're as far off as. Uh... <laughs> no, am I not talking to sports fans? Um, so you you really you want to be the kind of person that likes to implement, mm-hmm. likes to take systems and processes and operations potentially improve upon them, which is always a gift when a franchisee uh, improves upon our system and process. But for the most part, they're really happy, not necessarily innovating, but that they take something and they just implement it. And their job is to run the play. And um, they've done that previously in their careers. So they want to be uh, implementers, but also want to own their own business. They have that in their heart. And that's really the perfect franchisee because we're doing all that innovating and digging in on their behalf. So they don't have to, because it is very difficult to run a business and continually innovate. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, your franchise is is a very specific example, but I think a lot of uh, the frameworks will apply apply in like a broad, um, in a broad way. What, should like a franchisee expect from you? I mean, do you do their accounting? Do you provide them with cameras? Do you provide them with clients? Yeah. So in the beginning, it changes. Like in the beginning, it's all about getting them open and getting them open with a lot of leads. It's their business. So they purchase all of the items that they're going to need for startup. But we provide all the systems, processes, and operations, all the construction best practices, the layouts, the design guides, the, the vendors with that we've negotiated discounts with. And we're holding their hand, getting them open. And if something goes wrong with their lease or their, you know, landlord, something happened yesterday with one of our franchisees with their landlord. And we literally like got in the car very short notice. And we so, were like, so they get you to really to take care of that. Yeah. Them. Yeah. We went to back cause we know how to do it. And somebody mm-hmm. who's new to franchising or new to business ownership has never negotiated a lease before, mm-hmm. you know, so we put on the boxing gloves when we need to, we get in the ring with them. Um, we man- help them manage the construction. We get them open. So getting them open with meeting our lead count goals, we have systems that they can really choose from. They can say, well, I really want to set up a lead generation booth at a you know fair, and we'll have a best practice for that. Or maybe they want to run Facebook ads, and they want to generate leads that way. But we want to mm-hmm. see them with a very specific amount of leads when they open. Then we have lead conversion strategies that we use. And so we really consider that grand opening support to go into like 90 days post-open. Then they go into a weekly webinar series with us, and we distribute a financial scorecard on how the entire system is doing weekly. So we distribute our KPIs for every unit weekly, and you don't want to be on the bottom of that list. <laughs> and so, so people who don't know what's a competition. KPI? What were you saying? For people who don't know what's a KPI. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Key performing indicators. So let's say that we want them to convert leads to customers at 50%. We will distribute how everybody's performing within that KPI to our whole entire system weekly. So if you're at 30%, you're going to be pretty motivated to get to 50%. Or if you're not sure how, and you'd call us or maybe even call another franchisee and say, how are you doing that? How are you at 80% conversion? I want to be there. And so, it sets expectations yeah. for the business. So they, they can see there's clear growth opportunity. Yeah. And we have bet, you know good, better, best for all of our key performing indicators of where we think they should be and the tools we use to get them there. So all of these proven systems and processes have been in place for a really long time. We have centralized quality control. We provide critiques for photographers through our home office. So uh, that really helps people without a photography background to own a little nest. They really just have to love sales and marketing and family. Interesting. So this is kind of like a in-between between true business ownership and being an employee because you're not, it's not the wild west for you. Yeah, it's so funny. Weekly guidance and weekly help. Yeah, it's totally funny. You know, it took me a while to learn what that relationship is between us and the franchisee because they're not my employee. Mm-hmm. So if they make a decision that I don't agree with, I can just say, hey, my experience has been differently, but it's their business. At the same time, they don't have to figure out everything from scratch and they have a lot of support. So that's when a franchise works really well. That's what it looks like. What's the extent of their accountability to you once the franchise is set up? 
So obviously they've been motivated to increase those KPIs, but what's the other consequences for not doing so besides just the business not being healthy? Yeah, we do have an agreement and there's some consequences for violating the agreement. There's pretty, it's pretty hard to violate the agreement. Like they can't compete with the business, you know, they can't basically take everything we've taught them and set up shop next door and say like, oh, okay, well now I don't have to pay you because it's not a littleness. Like they can't do that. Um, So there's, there's pretty reasonable parameters. They have to um, maintain a pretty decent level of customer satisfaction to keep the brand and that just protects everybody in it. Um, but you know, they get a lot of warnings to, to improve if they're not. So, um, that is really the level of accountability. I mean, that is sort of the risk of franchising is that you do let go of control of your brand to a certain extent, but if you choose the right people, which we are very selective about who we let in, that, um, it's not an issue. What's your vetting process like? It's pretty, pretty extensive. So we go through an initial 30 minute call and there's three hour long webinars that they attend, uh, that we learn more about them and they learn more about us and we kind of get a sense of their reaction. So we're looking for certain qualifiers as we are going through that process. Then we spend a day together, um, just really getting to know each other in person. And that's the end of the process. But we have, we have very specific things that we're looking for, uh, that we ask questions around as we progress. Like, uh, can you share some of them or are they kind of... Yeah, no, not at all. I'm happy to share them. Uh, we're looking for people who, has, who have managed other people successfully before. Uh, you know, running, we're not necessarily looking to teach, teach people how to make their first hire. Uh, we can tell them our way of doing it and give them job descriptions and, and interview guides, but we're not necessarily looking to kind of coach them through... Um, just, you know, what you say when they first walk in the door. I mean, those kinds of things. Um, and if you've hired before, you've kind of figured out how to trust your gut. So we're looking for a certain, um, a moderate level of management experience. They don't have to have like 20 years, but we don't want management to be brand new to them because there's too many other things to learn. Um, right. We don't want to teach them how to read a PL. Um, we want them coming in with a, a sense of what it means to look at a PL for the first time, which is a profit and loss statement. So we are looking for some people, people with a decent amount of business experience or, or corporate experience before they own a little nest. Um, we're looking for a really specific values match. And so we ask a lot of questions around their personal values. And then we are, um, in addition to, can they implement, do they have a values match? Can they capitalize the business? Do they have access to a loan? Um, we're on the SBA small business registry, so we can fast track an SBA loan for them. You know, can they, can they capitalize the business? Because as we know, most, the number one reason why most businesses fail is from undercapitalization. Right. What, and what are the expectations around that? Um, if they're going to get started with, and I imagine many other franchises are, are not that different. They need to have 500000 in net worth, 100000 in liquid assets. Like what, what kind of expectations are reasonable? So we really just focus on just making sure they can get funded around what their startup's going to be because it's not, compared to other franchises, we're not that expensive, particularly compared to other brick and mortar. So I think our range is, our COO um, deals with this more, but I think our range is like 130 to 225. So as long as we know that they can get a loan, they have to fill out an application. As long as we're confident that we can get them a loan for that amount, then we're we're happy. You know, we don't think they're going to need more than that. Um, And yeah. You go on. I was going to say, and we have really four different ways that people can fund their business. So if even if you're looking at Little Nest or another franchise, I can, if it's helpful to your listeners, I can go through the four ways that we find that most people find financing. Yeah. Sure. Okay, cool. So we're on the SBA registry, which means our business plan has been pre-approved by the um, SBA. Uh, and a lot of good quality franchisors will have that. And so it'll just fast track an SBA loan. And so that's one way. Um, the second way is through um, like a home equity line or something like that. Um, so it would be more like personal financing through cash. There's non-traditional financing out there for franchisees. There's a company called Benetrends that we recommend that is um, does for a, a I think it's a loan against your 401k and it's a tax-free loan. So it's actually a really cool program and that's their product. They specialize in that. And then the fourth is um, the National Bank of Mom and Dad. 
that. And so <laughs> some people go for that and that actually happens or grandma and grandpa. And, and that happens probably more often than, than you would think. It, it sort of surprised us how often that happens that all of a sudden mom and dad have been like, you know what, you've been killing yourself in the corporate world for 15 years. Let me help you out. Um, and they really want to do that. And, and that's been common too. Yeah. I've heard about that kind of stuff a lot too. So I've heard that other franchises, and I'm not sure what you guys do, charge a franchising fee to get set up. Uh, and the classic one that I've heard, I don't know if you guys have heard it, is that McDonald's charges half a million dollars <laughs> to set up a McDonald's uh, location, whereas Chick-fil-A charges 5000 So, and I think, I think a Chick-fil-A person came to my high school when I was in high school and told us this. Uh, so I was always wondering, why is, why is the difference so huge between those setup fees and also do you guys charge a setup fee or are you just looking for capitalization to get started? Yeah. I don't know if Chick-fil-A, I, I, I would be sure if you could Google it. I'd be, I would love to find out if Chick-fil-A, right. um, yeah. what their friend, just what, to go we're Chick-fil-A. We're both doing that right now. <laughs> Chick-fil-A franchise fee. I would love to find out. I'd be shocked if it was 5,000. We're 40,000. That's pretty middle of the road. Um, that's okay. pretty common. And that factors into the range that I just shared with you. And you can get a loan for it. So it is, um, and that's, it's, that's like a pretty, like I said, middle of the road franchise fee. Um, I know there's some franchisees fees that are like a hundred thousand. So what we do is we, and, and wait real quick before yeah. you go forward, what, uh, what's your revenue share? Because I, I think I could tell you exactly why Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A is 5,000 because it is. But Ours is 5%. Okay, so Chick-fil-A, it's 5,000 to get in. Ah. Then they rent as the franchisee for 15% of sales plus 50% of pre-tax profit remaining. So oh my you, goodness. So oh. they basically take everything from you. It's really cheap to get into it because they basically own you. Yeah, and Chick-fil-A owners do really well, financially really well. Mm. Um, I do, I've known some, um, I've met some, I mean, so whatever they're doing, it works out incredibly well for them. I know Chick-fil-A owners rake it in, but there's like a two to three year waiting list for Chick-fil-A. That's mm. very interesting. That's a very unusual model. Oh. Typically, the range is anywhere between um, probably 30 and 50, so we're right in the middle, and that. Um, includes a lot of your startup construction management. So you're basically getting your hand held almost daily for like a year. Uh, and so that's why we have to charge that much because we have to assign like a good amount of personnel to that that startup period. Um, Do I literally give you 40 to whatever K and then just walk away and like just say like email me when it's open? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because there's a lot of on the ground work to do, mm -hmm. but, um, you do give us the 40 K and it, a lot happens immediately after that. We yeah. give you a steps to open. We give you a weekly guide, it includes a week of in-person training, it includes us going to you for a week before you open training all your team members. There's a lot of value in it. Uh, so you know, most franchisors don't make a lot of money, if at all, on the franchise fee, um, where they end up becoming profitable is in the, in the royalty stream once it gets going. Right. Yeah. So I've, I guess I've never been into a little nest. Do they look always the same or is it always different? I guess where I'm coming up with this question is I go to a lot of Starbucks and I'm always really fascinated with how every Starbucks looks unique, but it's still very obviously Starbucks design. Yeah. Like this perfect, just middle ground where it's unique, but you still know where you are. And I'm just fascinated with like who does that, you know? So do you guys work with the franchisee to create kind of an on-brand store design, but still is unique? Yeah. So we have a pretty extensive design guide that they follow. It's like 40 pages and it has photos of all the different options they can choose from and links to all of the vendors that we have discounts with to outfit their studio. Uh, and so we try to make it fun, you know, so that maybe there's three or four couches to choose from from your sales room instead of one. And if they want a non-prototype couch, absolutely not a problem. They can email us. Okay. But what we found is that it just makes their lives a lot easier if we've kind of narrowed it down. 
Yeah. But if you tell them exactly what to buy, it's no longer fun. So, yeah. you know, it's that balance of like making it fun, but not overwhelming um, that we try to accomplish. But uh, so far, so good, because a lot of times the spaces are all different, like shapes and they have different storefronts and the shopping center looks really different. Like the one that we're building in Ashburn, Virginia right now, it's super modern looking. Mm-hmm. And so our signage that is on a more traditional studio isn't going to look good. So we're constantly adjusting, uh, but yeah. we want it to look and feel like a little nest when you walk in. If you're a business owner, having the resources you need to support and grow your company means everything. That's why you need to know about Silver Rock Funding. Silver Rock Funding has access to millions of dollars in new private investor capital and lends to established businesses. They aren't bankers in three-piece suits. Their investors view businesses with a refreshing approach, looking beyond credit scores to find funds to help you grow. Do you have current assets? Maybe accounts receivable? Do you accept credit cards? These could all factor into the approval process. If you own an existing business and have been making at least $10,000 a month and need cash, then check out Silver Rock Funding. If you call now, you can get the funding you need, whether it's $5,000 or $500,000. Funding typically happens within 48 hours. To get started, call 1-800-688-2418. That's 1-800-688-2418. Get the capital you need to grow your business. Laura and I, uh, Laura, my wife, um, and I have talked a lot about opening some brick and mortar ideas we've had. And uh, one of the the big reservations that has kept us back is uh, this ramp up period and and the the kind of unknowing, you know, you're paying this rent, that's a fixed cost and it's generally really high where we live. And then you have to acquire customers and, you know, maybe it takes you three to four months to hit like a reasonable capacity. Um, what sort of expectations do your franchise have, franchisees have? Um, do, do they have business from day one? They typically do. Yeah, we try. We hope that's the case. We obviously can't guarantee financial performance. The Federal Trade Commission require, like, actually prevents us from making any kind of guarantees around that during the sales process. But after they sign, we create a ramp up plan for them. And what it comes down to, just like with any other business, right, is like how many leads can you generate? How many of those leads can you convert? And how much is that person going to invest when they come into your store or studio or restaurant or whatever it is? And that's the game, right? So you've got to really be able to know what, how to pull each of those levers and feel really confident about it, have benchmarks for which, how you want to hit them at certain points, and then just back into it. Um, how early way. are you starting on the lead generation? Uh, like, well, day okay. after signing. Okay, so day after signing, and then it's like 12 months until the store opens, then it's one month. Like, So how long is the period usually? Typically six to nine months. Um, we could go faster, but a lot of our, it's interesting, a lot of our franchisees are falling in love with centers that are new construction. So that's yeah. taking a little bit longer. I get it. It's like building a new house. You know, it's fun. Sure. Um, but it's taking a little bit longer because of that. Um, but we want to see them participate in lead generation activities from like, pretty early on, having booths at fairs, getting people, driving people to their Facebook page. And uh, it's something that we put a lot of focus on. Is there any kind of restriction you put on the photography itself? Because mm-hmm. I would imagine like the 90s Sears background probably isn't in your allowed list of background. What are you, what are you talking about? I or- love that look. So, yeah, our puffy painted clouds um, are in this summer. We've, we've since, we're going to retire them in a month now. So we, um, we do have uh, a um, technical review process. Mm-hmm. So if somebody applies for a candidate, our actual, our digital team that does all of our retouching and everything will provide a critique um, to the franchisee on whether or not they think they per- that person should even interview. Typically, the interview includes a demo shoot which we'll do a technical evaluation on. And then they go through a pretty intense eight-week training. And some people don't make it through that training. Um, It's something that some people just can't 
honestly handle it from a technical standpoint because we have to be this is the trick about being a photography studio in a world where everybody has a phone is that we have to be significantly better than what they can do on their own significantly Mm -hmm. and the technical training requirements uh, do a really good job of making sure of that so i want to take a step back and i want to look at it from the other side um, I know that, that uh, I, first of all, I definitely agree with you. You have to be premium if you want to differentiate yourself, make a serious living. Um, I know there are a lot of people in the audience who um, they're uh, laying floors or they're, they're doing, they're, they're painting buildings or, or just all different things that uh, involve their own time and they may want to expand into a franchise. Uh, how might you go about that? So they, you're saying that they want to franchise their own business. Yeah, like if, if that was something you were interested in. So I feel pretty strongly that you should be able to duplicate it without you at first. Mm-hmm. So if you're laying floors, you should get to a point where you're not the person laying floors, and then you should go into a neighboring market and do it again. Because that's what we did, and it really, really helped us refine our systems, processes, and operations. Eventually, you probably don't want to grow a franchise with having two different locations because you're going to be spread too thin, and that's a mistake that I made in the beginning. Um, I should have sold that other company on location earlier, but the perfect person bought it in the perfect time, so it all worked out. The... um, and, but that will really help you understand what's need to be set in place in order for you to be able to look somebody in the eye and say, I have a proven set of processes, systems, and operations. Then when you're ready, you, and that might take a couple of years, you know, and, and I think in the age of, you know, of tapping our foot in front of the microwave, we can sometimes be a little impatient when it comes to our businesses, but the really, the, the right way to go about it is to duplicate it first yourself. Um, when you say duplicate it or even create the second location, mm-hmm. one, uh, you know, I, I can resonate with you not laying the floors, but yep. are you the manager of the people laying the floors or are you literally bringing in a manager and you're attempting to educate them? And then if you're able to successfully do that and then they can manage the floor people, then you have a franchise. So I'm a little biased by my own path. So I'll mm-hmm. put that out there. But I would say you should probably get to a point where you have somebody else that's managing those people, and it's truly not about you anymore. It's truly all about the fact that you have great systems and processes. Because if you can train a manager to do it, you can train a franchisee to do it. Mm-hmm. And But if you're still the one, you're not going to understand where all the gaps are and the nuances of what you know. And so that, to me, is when you have a duplicatable business. Lots of franchises start franchising before they have that in place. I didn't. I really felt like from day one, I could look people in the eye and say, I duplicated this twice and it wasn't about me anymore Yeah. at a certain point. And uh, so that has definitely contributed to our franchisee success. The, the Listen, the, the sooner they're profitable, the happier they're going to be with the whole thing. And in the early stages of franchising, your franchisees have to be super happy or else you won't grow because you need them to recommend and validate to prospective franchises. So I'm, like I said, I'm biased by my own path. It's not the way that you need to do it, but it's the way we did it. And I, and I think it really served us well. Yeah. Have you had a franchise fail at all? Nope. Or everyone's been successful so far? No, but I'm, I mean, I have three open. Um, That's but right. I think every single time we open one, they're doing better. They're opening with more leads. They're opening with um, with better construction. You know, so we not, I mean, our first franchisee is doing really well. She's outside of New York City. She's a rock star. She's amazing. She was an entrepreneur magazine, like a lover. Um, and she'll always, you know, I love her studio and love everything she's done, but we are, we're looking to make every open better. Um, and that's something we're really focused on. Now that you have three and I'm sure you're thinking about this going forward with more opening, what's your time split like between your original store and managing your franchisees? My original store, the one that I have, um, I pop in and out of, but I, 
I don't manage. Um, I participate as an employee sometimes, which is really interesting, and I love it when the customer doesn't know I'm the owner because then I really have empathy for the people who are in the positions that I'm training for, and that helps give me a lot of insight and keeps me real. Uh, But I do not manage that on a day-to-day basis. That store reports into our COO. I'm very focused on our franchisees. Um, I love that location um, and the people in it are near and dear to my heart and I have a great relationship with them, but I'm really looking at making sure our franchisees are, have everything they need. Gotcha. Right so one thing I'm curious about is your thoughts on potential franchisees who don't plan on being involved in the business hands-on themselves. Because I think it was Chick-fil-A again. I read some requirement or guideline a while ago where it said, uh, if you're planning on just hiring out everything, including day-to-day management of your franchise, don't apply. We only want people who are going to be in the store, you know, 40 hours a week with hands-on. Is that kind of your philosophy or would you consider? Totally my my philosophy. Yes. Yeah. We require owner-operators. Other systems don't. Mm -hmm. They don't have as strong financial performance. There's probably a reason why Chick-fil-A has like 40% of higher, I think last time I checked, like 40 to 50% higher average revenue than any other competitor that they have. Um, There is something magical about the owner being involved. And it is um, particularly when it comes to people holding, you know, the owner being around people's babies and people trusting their babies to a brand. Um, I don't think the owner needs to be there 40 hours a week. The owner could be there 20 or 30 hours a week, particularly if they open multiple locations. And many Chick-fil-A owners have multiple locations. But in terms of um, them working a day job in corporate America and like farming out the management, we could have sold 10 more by now if I allowed it, but I just won't. Yeah. And you wouldn't allow it for just a investor who didn't have his own day job either. Exactly. Yeah. It's not the right business. Yeah. It's not the right business for that. I suppose the principle of whoever owns it having their hands on every day makes them care more probably. Yeah. I think that there's something to be said for, for the hands on aspect. I mean, like I said, it's a balance. Like I don't, I don't want to say, Oh, they have to be there every day. They could be there seven days a week. They can never take a vacation. I mean, that's not, but this needs to be their focus. And there is something to be said about focus, probably more so than time, than, than clocked time in and out. There's something to be said about this being their primary focus. When they're reading a book, they're reading a book about how to improve this particular business versus having 10 other investments going on. When they're thinking about employee development, they're thinking about this concept versus you know the employment development at their corporate job. It's just, like I said, it's not the right kind of business. And we have really awesome financial performance. And so that has a lot to do with the fact of focus, I think, of the owner. Uh, Thomas and I are very uh, process-driven people. We run our businesses, um, I think, much like how you run yours. And I could tell that process is not a uh, like a struggle for you. But in creating uh, the franchise, I'm sure there was a lot of really tough times. What were some of like the really hard parts of like creating and setting up the franchise? The most difficult part, by far, was introducing process to original team members who hadn't signed on for it. That was really hard for me because I had intense loyalty to the people who started with me. And at the same time, when you get to a point where your business is looking to become a national brand, you've got to have process. You have to. And so um, I saw that vision and I was excited about it, but not everybody was. And that was really hard because I'm like loyal to my core. Um, and at a certain point I had to choose that, like, this is the way we're going to grow. And it didn't go over well with everybody, but at the same time, everything worked out great. Did you lose anyone as a result? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the tough parts of business is when one person wants the company to go in one direction and then you've got people who have been there the whole time and everything was working out between you and they don't see it the same way. Yeah, or they had a love-hate relationship with the idea of growing. Like they love the idea of growing because they like the idea of like their compensation increasing or like them having career pathing, but they didn't like the idea of growing of like you know, it's sort of like the uh, the that they didn't want to be part of something bigger. Mm. Um and weren't necessarily didn't see themselves as as people who uh, could could change and shift and grow with a growing company. Mm-hmm. 
How long have you been doing this for? Um, I, it, I, I see in some of the, the writings that you have a multi-million dollar business. Congratulations. That's awesome. Um, I know that you didn't do it in a year. And I'm yeah. sure you didn't do it in three years. Uh, and I think few people, when they see the result of your effort, understand like how terrible. It was like pulling hair probably for a lot of it. Can you tell us about the, like, how long it took and just how easy, I'm sure. I'm sure it was a breeze. Yeah, it's super easy. Every day was like so easy. Um, <laughs> I ran into somebody at the hair salon yesterday and she was like, gosh, you know, from social media, you make it look easy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the highlight reel. Don't be tricked by the highlight reel. Yep. But um, for the first nine years, I was an independent photographer. And so I've been doing this for 15 years, but the first nine was um, a different business really, where I was just an independent photographer and um had a support staff. I've been working on Little Nest for about six years, but it's been a really, there's been a lot of ups and downs. Um, and I did have a multi-million dollar business. I don't anymore because I sold off one of my units that was producing about half of that number. So, um, now that person's a franchisee and that's fabulous. Like I'm you know, that was the right decision. So, but we'll get back there too. Um, I don't really get too hung up on the numbers. Um, you know, it's the long-term vision that I'm after. Uh, but it has been really difficult. I think for me, it's really been balancing the heart and the head. And sometimes you have to make heart decisions and sometimes you have to make head decisions. And I'm a total person that leads with my heart. And so over time, I've learned how to kind of embed um, head decisions into that um, and not get totally sucked up into every little piece of drama that comes my way, which I used to do, used to um, be exceptionally good at. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of those tough decisions, what made you make the switch from doing independent photography? I mean, taking pictures of celebrities, it sounds like a pretty cool thing as long as you're not, I don't know, stalking them or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you decided to go do family stuff. Was that just because you wanted a more grounded type of business where you go in to one place every day? or? Yeah, totally. I wanted a business that didn't that was bigger than me. Um, is what it came down to. And I was looking to start a family. I now have a two-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And I, I really I wanted a business that um, I could leave and that it could run without me. And I didn't want to have to worry about, oh, well, if I took a maternity leave, I'm down for 25% of my year. Um, and so uh, there was that kind of logical aspect to it, but also that idea that that isn't where I wanted to end. I mean, I was 30 years old when I started Littleness. So... Um, probably me a little bit older, but I really wanted to, I didn't want my career to end there. I wanted to create something bigger than me. I wanted to leave a legacy that was about the, a larger collective group of people than just my individual self. And that was definitely on my heart to do. I am so happy that you said it was 30 or even a little later that you started <laughs> this because um, I think a lot of people feel like the ship has already sailed for them. Right. Like I had to have been financially smart when I was 24. So that when I was 30, I could have hit this threshold and whatever. And it turns out, uh, I think most successful entrepreneurs are around that age because you like hit the right level of like maturity, um, you know, confidence. Um, could, could you maybe speak to why it didn't happen when you were 28? I mean, I think I had a great business when I was 28, but it was just all about me. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a fantastic business. I was, I was earning, um, you know, I was bringing in a huge amount of revenue with a camera in my hands. Um, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want the brand to be about me anymore. I want it to be about something bigger. Um, and when I made the choice to pivot into more of a retail concept in a startup at 30, 31 years old, I took a huge salary cut huge. Um, and it was, it was definitely, you know, a J curve. I mean, I went down for a while before coming back up again. So I think we always make those decisions and we make those risks and it's all about, um, really thinking through what do you want your path to look like and, and what is your greatest desire for your path? And that was really it for me. I mean, I had the idea, um, I wasn't, even though I was really well-known as an independent photographer, I wouldn't feel as satisfied as I do today. Today, I'm, every day is so rewarding because I'm 
helping other entrepreneurs, particularly female entrepreneurs, do something that would have been really hard for them to do without what we created. And that's, that's incredibly rewarding. And they're creating creative jobs and they're just, they are, um, they're doing an awesome job. When you were independent, were you more of a mindset that you did want the business to be about you? Not necessarily, but it's inevitable. Mm. And, um, within the photography industry, I was speaking and teaching. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't happy being the star of the show. I really wasn't. And I, it, it, I, I'm much happier watching somebody else be the hero of the story. And I'm just the guide. And that, that makes is the happiness and the fulfillment that I get from that is undescribable, but that's how I'm built, you know? And I think sometimes as you were getting at like how old you are, I mean, I think it takes a while to kind of figure out how you're built and what makes you happy and what makes you tick. And you could be making a lot of money and like not be happy. Mm-hmm. So I think that does take time. I don't think I'm finished learning. And it's funny that um, you, I thought, I thought I was really lucky to find what I love when I was 30 years old. I was really lucky. I think that's young. I think a lot of people don't find it until 40 or 50. Mm. And um, I was just, you know, I, was an, I fell into photography when I was 23. So, you know, my path started earlier. Is that when you first started taking pictures? Professionally, yeah. Really? Were you a hobbyist photographer before that, or? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. In college, and I was a, um, I worked uh, in HR for a couple of years out of college, and then um, started doing this full time. I think I have somebody I need to send this episode to. I just got an email <laughs> from a kid in uh, Bangladesh, and he said his parents wanted to go to college for engineering, but he wants to go for photography. And you know, he asked me what to do, and I said, "Well, for one, I don't know how much college costs in Bangladesh, but." I could tell you that I think photography is much more easily self-taught yes. than engineering is. So uh, I don't have all the answers, but if it were me and it were costly, I would probably go for engineering and then use all my side time on photography. But now we'll have a great you know, kind of story because you're obviously very successful now and you started off as a hobbyist. Yeah. I mean, I think probably the biggest piece of advice I would give for somebody in that position is like, you're not going to make a mistake. Whatever you do, you're not going to make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever you choose, you will, mindset is such a tremendous aspect of what makes you successful. That if you go to engineering school, you go to photography school, it's the mindset that will give you that positive outcome, yeah. much more so than the degree you leave school with. When you say you're not going to make the wrong choice, you mean because you're just going to make it work? Yes, because I don't know, even know if I believe in wrong choices. Mm-hmm. I think that we just there's always just an opportunity to learn. And I believe that we are all becoming masters as we grow at our own selves. And there's perfectionism is completely elusive. And, um, that's one thing I've, com- I've learned in the entrepreneurial journey. And one thing I continue to reiterate to our franchisees when they're in the midst of startup is just, it, it is, you know, Mastery is 10% of what happens and 90% of how you respond to it. Yeah. And people who are in a successful position are not there because shit worked out. Mm. They're not. They're there because they figured out how to learn from it every time it didn't. I I like that. Um, It wasn't like you made, like, I don't think we're all here on these mics, whatever, because we made all the right decisions. And (laughs) otherwise we would have like died. I think we just made decisions. You, know, you just did something. You went left or you went right. Yeah. I mean, you just, you didn't let that gremlin on the shoulder telling you that you couldn't every time something didn't work out win. That's all that happened. Mm. Maybe one of the big pitfalls is having too concrete of a picture of what you want to be. Totally. Because I was just thinking the other day to a conversation I had with a person at a business conference a couple of years ago, thinking, thank goodness I didn't take their advice because I'm so happy with where I am now. It all worked out. But I bet you if I did take that person's advice, my career would have gone very differently and I'd be saying the same thing. <laughs> Probably would. And that's what I mean is it's just, it's so about mindset. Mm-hmm. Success is, it's, it's, there's a mastery mindset or there's a, you know, a, a, a scarcity mindset. Right. And I don't believe in scarcity. Now, I don't want to be a uh, cliche, but um, have you heard of the movie slash book, The Secret? Yeah, I'm familiar with the secret. Um, I I believe in it. You know, I think that there was probably predecessors to the secret, but mm. 
I probably subscribe to a little bit more like Napoleon Hill and his work. Uh, but it's it's a similar philosophy is that you attract what you put out. And I think if you meet anybody in sort of in, in the elite percentages of whatever they do, you'll find that's probably going to be the case across the board. Um, you said you have um, at least one child, I'm guessing. Yes, two. Two. Son, two boys. Daughter, two two boys. boys. Yeah. So you've kind of done the whole gamut you built this thing um you're obviously uh raising them and um, i i imagine you're not raising them with the golden spoon in the mouth <laughs> because you slogged out yourself what's one of the the biggest stars like uh, north stars for you and like trying to set them up to succeed you know removing barriers but not making them you know a wet noodle and not able to uh, make it in the world themselves? You know, they're still pretty little, so they're probably, I'm just trying to teach them things like what I'm talking about now when they get frustrated, their blocks fall down. I'm like, listen, you know, that's good. That's good. You you learn something, you know, cheer for that. So I'm really trying to teach them not to get frustrated with themselves right now and to have that mastery mindset. Um, but they, um, I do, I do have a concern about raising children with too much abundance. And at the same time, you want the best for your kids, so you're going to send them to the best school, and you're going to raise them in the best neighborhood, and and that's if you you're going to give your children the very best you can afford, of course. So I think that it's always that balance. Like a month ago, I volunteered spontaneously at a um, men's homeless shelter, and cooked them food and served it, and. Um, it, those that so those sorts of experiences are so character building because you realize like you're just not that different than them. You think you are, but you're not. And you know, you're a couple of decisions different than these people. They've just had really, really terrible things happen to them, but they're no different than us. And um, I have as much as I can give my children that understanding of of value around what we are able to provide them financially, then I think they'll leave really well-adjusted kids into the world, which is what I, you know, can only hope for. Mm. Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> really? Great <laughs> <laughs> for franchising, but it was so cool. Cool. Laura, yeah. this is an awesome episode. If people want to uh, read more or connect with you, where should they go? Yes, they can just go to my name. That's where my leadership blog is. It's lauranovak.com, N-O-V-A-K. If they're interested in owning a studio, they can click on the Own a Studio link. And um, in browsing online and looking at all your stuff, it seems you are also diving into the podcasting space. Yeah. So I have a podcast if you go to that website um, and it's called Joypreneur and it's the idea, some of the things we've talked about today about the idea of that entrepreneurship can be really hard. So how do we find joy in the everyday and, and get out of it what we were hoping to when we went into it? Awesome. Cool. Well, all you guys should go and subscribe to Laura's new podcast. If you guys have questions for us, listenmindymatters at gmail.com is our email address. So ask us whatever questions you have. If you have franchise questions, maybe we'll get Laura back on for an encore at some point. And uh, lastly, if you want to find our toolbox full of all of our favorite resources and links and books and stuff, that's at listenmindymatters.com slash toolbox. So thanks so much for listening, and we will see you in next week's episode. Later. Later, man. Tell your friends about this show.